Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Episode 3, the Sprain Tongue Edition. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of the Dissolve. On today's show, we'll talk about four fans-only films that target a specific fan base while leaving a broader audience behind, and the positive and negative effect of humor in action films. We'll also play a game called Parental Guidance Suggested, in which I give our contestants descriptions from the IMDb Parent Guide and ask them to name that movie. We'll wrap it up as usual with our rapid-fire recommendation face-off, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned, Dissolvers. If you're not a fan of the British boy band One Direction or some weird Morgan Spurlock completist, chances are you're going to pass on seeing their new concert movie One Direction This Is Us. And you know what? They don't care. Because like Twilight or Katy Perry Part of Me or Justin Bieber Never Say Never or the rarefied fare of Portuguese director Pedro Costa, it's a movie made and presumably budgeted for a very specific fan base. There's no expectation of reaching a broader audience, which can be advantageous or limiting depending on the circumstances. Here to talk about it is Tosh Robinson. Genevieve Kosky and Nathan Rabin. Hi, everybody. Hey, Hi, Scott. Hello, Scott. What's going on? So, Genevieve, let's start with you, since okay. uh, since you're the person we've tormented in the past with One Direction and Katy Perry and Justin Bieber, the, which is the great trifecta of teen-related concert movies. What's the advantage of making movies this way to a viewer? What, to a viewer? Well, yeah, or... they're just fans. Yeah, but, yeah. But, yeah. What, but what's the experience like, I guess? Well, the viewing experience, I mean, if you're not a fan, is pretty surreal. And I've actually kind of gotten to the point of enjoying going to see these films, even though the three, the Justin Bieber movie, the Katy Perry movie, and now the One Direction movie are very, very similar. Um, It's just swapping out different acts. But the actual experience of going to them can be a lot of fun because these are super fans and they react to these movies in a way that is very unusual in a movie theater. Like when I went to see the Justin Bieber movie, they had glow sticks and it's just like constant squealing. People are are up they're dancing it's very interactive experience and i don't see that happening in many other film going experiences so if you're not a fan and that sounds interesting to you i guess that could be a draw but otherwise there is no draw that's kind of what makes something a fan only proposition is it is made for fans you can't find that kind of enthusiasm for anything else because it hits them so hard these very specific performers right and it's very tuned to them like there's these aren't made uh, with a eye toward you know telling a story or or illuminating anything it's just kind of reinforcing what fans already know and what they love and giving it to them in giant 3d form i mean even if there is a story involved when i saw i think it was high school musical 2 i hadn't seen the first one i was i was kind of randomly assigned to it and i saw it in a room full of super fans and i mean i was not really aware of the impact that uh, zach efron apparently had on (laughs) on young girls of a certain age but there was a point maybe it was three there was a point during whichever movie it was which was my first high school musical experience where he takes off his shirt for Mm -hmm. about three seconds oh my god there's a lot of that in the one direction movie too the air just went it's out like of everyone takes off his shirt in the One Direction movie. <laughs> that seems pretty <laughs> he, random and pretty bad. It's, it's a fan He's only like, prospect. hey guys, it's so hot in here. But it's a different, it's like a crossover fan only prospect. Yeah, there, there was that, the moment, I mean, you know, there was a lot of squealing throughout the, the movie. There was a lot of excitement. Um, but the moment where he took off his shirt, all the oxygen left the room as every teenage girl in the theater went, <gasps> At the same time, I mean, you can't duplicate that experience. It's it's kind of like watching a new animated movie in a theater full of little kids. You get to hear exactly what people are fans of, and, and it can be very illuminating. Sometimes it doesn't necessarily illuminate what you want, but you, you know what the fans are there for. But there's also kind of a deliberate nature to these movies, too. I mean, Genevieve was saying that they all follow a certain 
formula, are they sort of hamstrung by having to serve this audience uh, and not try to reach out for more people? Well, I mean, they're hamstrung if you assume that the purpose of a movie is to reach the broadest possible audience. But I mean, that's the blockbuster model. The idea that you have to make a movie as broad as possible to reach as many people as possible is something that you have to do with, you know, a, a movie that costs $250 million to make. But, you know, something on the line of like, I went and saw the Glee concert film and reviewed that. Those movies don't cost that much money to make. They're meant for a specific small audience. I think if anything, knowing that they're going for a small audience and that they're spending a small amount of money in the process frees them up to be exactly what they want to be instead of trying to be all things to all people. I actually was thinking of a fan-only movie that does try to reach a a wide audience, which already has a wide audience, but uh, was hamstrung by that effort, which is the Sex and the City movies. Oh, yeah. Uh, The first Sex and the City movie arguably was okay uh it was definitely a love letter to fans it it gave fans of the series what they wanted and gave it to them bigger like there's a whole big thing about carrie's wedding dress because carrie's wardrobe is a big thing and she gets married and the whole series is about carrie finding love and you know and it it kind of amplified what fans cared about in the series to a movie size and that made sense i I would never recommend that movie to people who didn't love the series Mm -hmm. but it was still trying to be a movie. Then the second Sex in the City movie just kind of like took it too far. It took it to the level of making those characters into cartoons, mm-hmm. into kind of uh, caricatures of the characters that people loved. And fans, I mean, that, that movie made half of what the first one made. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they both did really well, actually, but uh, it, there was definitely a major uh Increase in the the fan love from I, the first I, to the I second one. Could not agree with you more, and I'm going to talk about this partially because I want to get something out of having suffered through Sex in the City too, <laughs> which, if I'm not mistaken, actually opens up with Liza Minnelli singing uh, "Single Ladies at a Gay Wedding." Yeah. So it was almost as if saying everything that like people in the Sex in the City fans want, we will give it to you in such excessive amounts that you'll be turned off, that you'll find it all repulsive. I mean, I was. <laughs> it was. Parody. I found it overwhelming. Like I, I, it almost felt like they were trying to destroy the franchise mm-hmm. by saying. Over Really? Really? You want this? You want this? We're going to give it to you in such a dispiriting, soul-crushing way that you're not going to want it anymore. Well, but I think there's the problem they ended up having, and this is true of the first one as well, is like, how do we make this into a movie? Cinematic, yeah. yeah. You know, that will automatically get you away from sort of the more uh, character-based bits from the show. But I was trying to think of an example when we were t- you were talking about concert movies of, of something, you know, because concert films are, are by nature very fan-oriented. Mm-hmm. You know, you're into X artist, you go see the movie, and that movie is for you. I think the counter-example to that for me is something like stop making sense mm. with the talking heads like that's a kind of a conversion experience in a way if you're a fan of the talking heads you're obviously going to like the film but if you're not familiar with them there's just something very inclusive feeling about that movie there's something about it's just a whole experience you know very artfully directed by Jonathan Demme from you know David Burns stagecraft or something but I just feel like that's a, a kind of a rare case of something that could be narrowly directed that, that actually found a larger appreciation I think I had the same experience with uh, Martin Scorsese's Shine a Light and the Rolling Stones. I mean, it's not like I was ignorant of the Rolling Stones or hated them, but, uh, you know, they were never really central to my fandom. I was never any kind of super fan. And I watched that movie out of sheer curiosity, and it just, it so viscerally brings across why you would still be a fan of that band, like today, why what they're doing is still is still vibrant and interesting. And it's partially just in the performances, and it's, it's partially in the way it's presented. But, I mean, one of the things about concert films is they're so often either not contextualized you know here's a bunch of performances or the context is uh, you know very fan only focused like the Glee concert film the only contextualization is those characters 
doing weird little snippets in character as though they're their characters performing in concert, which is something only a fan is going to get. And then if you search for the words fan only prospect film on Google, like 90% of what you get is either concert films or like music documentaries. So often, even when it's not a performative film, when it's about music, you know, if you're delving closely into the lives of the people creating this music, that's really something that you only care about, you know, where this person came from and where their music came from. If you don't care about the music, you're not going to care much about the film, no matter how compelling the story is. Well, let me offer another thought on the other end of the spectrum, which is the auteur end of the spectrum. There's this Taiwanese director I really love named uh, Simon Liang. His most famous film was uh, What Time Is It There? But he had this, had this movie, his most recent movie, it was called Face. It was like 130 minutes long. It's a film that could only really be understood or even partially understood if you've seen his other work and sort of are familiar with all of his sort of tropes. And the festival circuit is sort of filled with these sort of propositions where you go and there's only a very small number of people who are intimately familiar with these filmmakers who can appreciate the movie. But the other example that I had from last year was two films, uh, To the Wonder, the Terrence Malick movie, and Passion by Brian De Palma. And both of those films premiered at the same time at Venice and then in Toronto, and they both got you know, they were both mostly pilloried, and I, but I liked them both and described them both, I think, I don't know, in print or, or in person or both, as four fans-only propositions, as movies that really don't seem to have much of an interest in kind of delving outside of the people who already admire Terrence Malick or already admire Brian De Palma. They weren't going to win new fans from that. And to me, there's kind of an advantage to that, right? But Brian De Palma does The Untouchables. He's looking to reach a very wide audience, or he does Mission Impossible. He's looking to re- reach a wide audience. But if he's kind of focused on, you know, the things that he does, the things that his fans really love, or if Terrence Malick kind of goes off on this sort of philosophical disquisition, then you can connect to a film on a different level than you could if it were more, if it were aimed for a broad audience. Well, it often seems like with that kind of thing, it's just a case of a filmmaker refining something that they're interested in and going even more narrow. I mean, I kind of got that feeling from Terry Gilliam's Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. He's following the same themes that he's followed throughout his career. You know, this sort of idea of, you know, fantasy and creativity being an out from the real world your only escape but you know the story is so weird and narrow and and the whole thing is just kind of like honing so closely in on this idea that there's not a whole lot left it sounds like we're kind of coming up with three different types of fan only propositions well oh, i think there are there more are i think yeah, there are yeah, several yeah, more even we haven't touched about on comic book movies or, uh, yeah and actually one that kind of stands out to me kind of talking about uh these filmmakers uh whose films are kind of a fan only proposition is tyler perry mm-hmm. who's an interesting filmmaker where he has theoretically or various times in his career tried to reach a broader audience one of the ways to do that is to make movies without medea who is his most popular character but he's also incredibly divisive and almost single-handedly kind of pushes his movies outside of the mainstream outside of what people are used to but at the same time every movie that he does without Medea makes about half as much as his movies with Medea so it's this very weird thing where on one hand I think he would love to be more of a mainstream figure but at the same time you know the fans are the people who support him and the fans don't like it when he strays too far from what he's popular for it sounds like you're kind of talking about like a combination of like a filmmaker and subject fandom where like you, what you're talking about with the you know auteurs is a fandom of a filmmaker and of that filmmaker's mm-hmm. work and when we're talking about concert films that's a fandom of a certain subject whatever the subject of that concert film or it could just be a documentary in general but um, then there's also I think the subset of fan only propositions that are about a source material mm-hmm. and comic books or comic right, book movies right. would or would or used to young fall adult under that novels, but yes yeah. young adult novels is obviously where I'm going with this and, yeah. and the, the big uh, <laughs> the big elephant in the room that I've been wanting to bring up of course is Twilight and you were talking about like how fan-only propositions can be hamstrung, and 
I think that's a big example of where the source material really kind of hamstrung the the narrative of those films because those are incredibly talky internal books and the success of that franchise gave it the expectations of a blockbuster and these, these films had to try and reconcile that with source material that is not made for that kind of filmmaking. I mean one of the most interesting examples to me is the Harry Potter franchise mm-hmm. because there's a series that came with a built-in humongous fan base but you can watch over the course of that series and see a series of different filmmakers struggling with exactly how much they want to make a fan-only prospect and exactly what they can get away with as a fan-only prospect. You know, the first movies being extremely accessible and broad, but not very good as films. And then sort of moving on the continuum more and more towards we're making this for the fans. So it has to have every moment and every thought in the book, even if that doesn't produce a particularly good movie. Right, because that's a trick of adaptation, what to keep and what to leave. But with really fan-beloved properties, you can't leave stuff out or you can't add stuff in without making people really angry. And to go back to Twilight for one minute, the final film of Breaking Dawn, the second part of Breaking Dawn, like leading up to people who knew the books were like, well, how are they going to make that climax interesting? Because the climax is literally the two factions meeting in a field, talking, and then going away. Like, like that's all it is. So there was a lot of talk of like, how would they make this work? And the way they made it work... <laughs> the, the world cannot see your finger yeah, quotes yes. on the podcast. Uh, the, the quote unquote made it work is by basically doing a major fake out with a big action sequence where everyone dies. And when I was in the theater watching that happen, fans were losing their shit. <laughs> Girls behind me were screaming like standing up it was it was like nothing i've ever like no reaction i've ever seen in a theater and then it, it turned out to be like ah just kidding it was all like the character imagine, imagining what could happen if we didn't talk in this field and then walk away which is what actually happened oh god i, I, I that was my problem too with the hunger games is speaking yeah. of big ya series is like the first film is an illustrated version of the book completely in, mm-hmm. in, in a way that makes it flat and kind of just functional uh and i think limiting to the imagination of a filmmaker when you when you don't have that opportunity to make a movie out of it, when you have to satisfy the fans, then that becomes a really tough proposition. As a At the same maker. time, I mean, I, I, you, you all know I have a deep-seated fascination with book-to-film adaptations and, and how they navigate that tricky water. And this is something that you and I kind of have a tension over, Scott, because... I kind of feel like if you're coming from a book that has a huge fandom, why not respect what made that story have a huge fandom in the first place? You know, you, you see these adaptations that are just like, let's throw out as much as possible. The, the, the Dark is Rising movie comes to mind. That is a book that's pretty unadaptable. And the idea of making it into a film in the first place was weird. But then when they did it, they kind of threw out all of the source material except the name and crafted on this very generic fantasy instead. And at that point, you, you have to ask yourself, you know you're not making this for the fans and you're not really making it for a broad audience either who are you making it for why why are you pretending that this is an adaptation so i i mean i think that there's a benefit in the fans only adaptation if only because of the possibility of you know maybe maybe the next adaptation i'd like to see the first adaptation actually acknowledge the material that earned fandom and then you know from there maybe further adaptations can be more experimentative more creative more outre like however you want to do them yeah well i mean we'll have that's definitely that whole discussion about adaptation is definitely something we should we should wrangle about in the future too because we certainly have a lot of thoughts on that but I, you know I think one thing I will say if we're going to talk about this in a positive way is that I love that passion I don't know if I would have enjoyed seeing the One Direction movie but I actually kind of like being a part of audiences like that you know and this and this is true of the of the auteur films as well I mean no one's screaming or anything but there is something exciting about people sitting down to see a movie in which they are hyper engaged mm-hmm. in what's going on they don't have this kind of like well this movie could go either way 
Blu-ray kind of neutrality um, that kind of makes the actual movie-going experience pretty dynamic. Oh, sure. I mean, Scott, you have two daughters. I'd, I'd say that you'll you'll have the opportunity to have oh, I a saw, One Direction I film saw, like I saw, experience. I saw my little pony Equestria girls with, uh, with, my, with my oldest, so I... I with your I fellow bronies. Well, they're bringing in kids. Uh, here's yet another form of the fan-only prospect. Um, not, I mean, not only films for children, which is very specific audience, uh, but anytime you have kind of the, you know, transferring something from, from TV to the big screen, mm-hmm. um, you know, Equestria Girls is a the film, sort of this film spinoff of a long-running TV show. Veronica or something. Mars movie. <laughs> the Veronica yeah. Mars movie, yeah. Aqua Teen Hunger Force colon movie film for theaters. Mm-hmm. Like anytime you're making a film that's sort of a, an attempt to reach a slightly wider audience on a much bigger screen, you've got that same balance between like how do we respect the existing fandom and how do we make this bigger in a way that actually deserves the screen. Yeah, and so Aqua Teen Hunger Force was kind of interesting in that it was kind of a giant fuck you to the idea that an Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie would be a palatable proposition. <laughs> it's just basically uh, flipping off the audience for 85 minutes, which I think is probably one of the reasons why it was not terribly, terribly successful. So what have we learned here today? <laughs> <laughs> well, th- that there are many types of fan-only movie. Yes, and that sometimes we like them and sometimes we don't. Yeah, but you're more likely to like them if you are a fan. <laughs> that, that seems like well, that I'm seems now. like the most. <laughs> well, I also the dissolved yeah. podcast telling you stuff you knew since a few weeks ago. Well, that's. I mean, one of the things I wrote down in my notes was I, like the whole fan only prospect is a weird case of you will like this if you already like this. I mean, yeah. that that kind of sums up the fan only prospect. But I don't think there's any particular problem with giving giving the people what they want. There's no problem except when there is. Uh, so uh, thanks very much, everybody. Thanks. Thank you. Earlier this month, Tasha and I shared a rare moment of harmony when we united in disappointment over Elysium, Neil Blomkamp's disappointing follow-up to District 9. In our conversation piece about the film, I said the film's humorlessness made its political allegory hard to digest. To quote Mary Poppins, sometimes it takes a spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down. But is it always a good idea to make action films funny? When does it work, and when does it overplayed? Joining me are Tasha. Hi, Tasha. Hi, Scott. And noted 80s action authority Matt Singer. Hi, Matt Singer. Hey minute. guys, how's it going? He gets a yeah, full you know. on credit. It's going all right, man. Um, so so <laughs> let's just add, throw out the general question. I mean, is it a good idea for action films to have a little bit of humor in them? Uh, is that generally a good prospect? Tosh Robinson. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, here's, here's kind of where I come down. It is easy to overdo the humor in action films. It's easy to have kind of the Arnold Schwarzenegger quip thing going on where it kind of turns into an action comedy or where you're maybe supposed to appreciate the action, but, you know, every time time he kills somebody he says you know I used to see you or whatever you know that kind of like lame pun version of uh, humor and action comedy I'm not the hugest fan of but I still prefer it over Elysium's uh, you know just stultifying grimness I mean I, I think it's a case-by-case basis and sort of situational awareness and not overdoing it are the important things but here here's what it comes down to real people in real tense circumstances crack jokes you know they may be dark jokes they may be uh, even failed jokes but people undercut dramatic tension with humor. And having people who, like Matt Damon and Elysium, who never crack a smile, who never crack a joke, well, I guess he has, he, he evinces a bit of a sense of humor at the beginning, but one thing, once things get serious, they never stop being serious. Yeah. And at that point, he stops being human. So, Matt, let's, you know, Tasha's just disparaged uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, <laughs> nice uh, to see do, you, do, Matt. Do, do you have a response to that? 
It's interesting because, you know, I didn't get to see Elysium, but hearing you guys say that you wished that Matt Damon was, you know, would have started, you know, cracking some jokes here or there, even though I am such a huge fan uh, of Arnold Schwarzenegger and his movies and hearing Tasha use the word lame in, in description of his puns was like a dagger in my back, but, or my front, I guess, since I'm sitting right here listening to it. I, I'm, some of the action movies I have seen recently where they try to inject a little humor into a otherwise serious movie, I find that to be almost as bad as the completely dour, super serious action movie. Uh, one that I did just happen to catch up with, which came out earlier this year, is the movie G.I. Joe Retaliation. Yes. Which starts out with a couple of scenes, which I'm pretty sure were the, was the stuff that they supposedly added in after the fact. They reshot some stuff with Channing Tatum after uh, his career kind of blew up right in the middle of making it. And it's all stuff with Channing Tatum and The Rock kind of palling around and being bros, you know, like playing video games and shooting guns on a range and making cracking jokes and stuff. And then sort of the rest of the movie begins and it's like all the G.I. Joes die, you know, Cobra takes over the world. It's like this very serious kind of depressing movie and the jokes and stuff seem totally out of place, like completely divorced from the rest of the movie and it almost feels like they were trying to do like the Christopher Nolan-y kind of action movie that's been so in vogue lately where you you are kind of very serious and this is an important movie it's not just a frivolous action movie and then they tried to kind of just throw in a bunch of jokes on top of it and it doesn't work I kind of I feel like it really the, the tone is so important if you if you go for serious and funny that's just a recipe for disaster I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a counter argument at you in the form of The Incredibles that is a movie that to me it's absolutely an action movie it has some very dramatic sequences some very frightening sequences but it's also pretty hilarious and I think part of the cue there is knowing when to do one and when to do the other not mixing them too much part of it is making the humor an organic part of the characters instead of making it feel kind of slathered on but part of it is also just making the humor accessible like kind of what you're talking about in terms of of humor where it's kind of meat-headed you know bro dude humor I, I kind of feel like that tends to undercut the seriousness of stories where where death might happen. I kind of like the whistling past the graveyard style of humor, but when it's just, oh, ho, ho, we stepped on those people and killed them, har, har, at that point it starts to curdle a little. And that was actually my big problem with Kick-Ass 2 that I just reviewed, yeah. is it's such an uncomfortable, and I know you saw this one too, Matt, so I'm really yep. curious for your take. For me, that movie's attempt to match up some really sick humor with what it really wants to be dramatic moments just was a complete mismatch. I think with a case, though, where you're talking about G.I. Joe, Matt, my feeling is sort of like, you really want us to take you seriously? <laughs> like, the, the jokes are, are, are maybe lame and ladled on, but I think the idea of approaching material that frivolous in a serious way is also really irritating. I think it has to do with deployment of effects, you know, and I think if you go back to the template of the modern action movie, uh, the original Die Hard, that was one, you know, I think the, the later Die Hard films pretty much immediately got too jokey and self-referential in a way that detracted from the action, but the first Die Hard really makes the laughs count, you know, when you have that helicopter <laughs> explode at the, at the top of the building and the guy says we're going to need some new FBI guys. I mean, that's a really funny, memorable line, and it can, and it reminds you that you know this is a pretty entertaining movie that you're watching. And or not... the the ho ho ho. Now I have a gun. Yeah. Now I have a machine gun sign. I mean, there are little touches in there, and again, I think part of the key to that is that it's 
it's organic humor coming out of Bruce Willis's character. It's humanizing. And, you know, that's a character with some pretty graphic vulnerabilities that the film exploits and kind of a dark sense of humor in, like, looking at his own situation. But he's not laughing at the people he's killing. You know, he's not laughing at victims. He's laughing kind of at himself in the situation. I mean, am I wrong yeah. there? Yeah, and the scale is never too big or too intense, too over the top. You know, like you mentioned, in the case of Kick-Ass 2, like, there are these jokes, these lots of gross-out jokes, and then they're sort of intercut with these, like, seemingly serious scenes. Scenes where, you know, in one scene, a characters will die and they'll play it for a joke, and in the next scene, a character will die. Then we see their funeral. And there's characters very seriously talking about what it means that this character is gone. And there's sort of a disconnect there. Again, it's like it gets back to that idea of tone. It's like, what kind of a story are you telling? And I think in the case of like a Kick-Ass 2, which I agree with you, Tasha, is a big mess. And in the case of uh, G.I. Joe Retaliation, where again, like you're right, they're, they're making a movie about toys and they're treating it like it's really intense. The stereotype now about like gritty, like we want to make a gritty hard R version of whatever it is, you know, like G.I. Joe. When you don't really understand the material or your, your tone is out of whack, that's where it really, I think that's the problem. It's not, well, action movies need to have humor or they can't ever work without humor. It's more like you have to know how to use the humor. Here's a theory for you. I mean, I, I feel like we're, we're talking in kind of like vague, broad, it's good if it's good and it's bad if it's bad kind of things. Here's a thesis that just came to my mind, kind of thinking about, you know, the we're going to turn toys into hard R movies situation. If you look at Michael Bay's Transformers movies, for me, the humor in those movies felt really flat because the humor is is aimed at essentially 13 year old boys you know there's there's fart jokes there's my mom ate a pot brownie jokes there's somebody pissed on somebody jokes and that's just completely at odds with kind of the mental age of the action which is meant to be much like at a much higher level is it? <laughs> uh, the, the action itself I think so I mean I think at least the opening of the first one where you're seeing you know a giant robot you know taking on the army in Qatar there's kind of a feeling there of this could with the right handling be an adult action movie but what it's specifically undercut with is a completely different age of like in terms of audience uh, the completely different age of comedy and maybe that's where the mismatch comes in for me is the you know the serious action stuff in Kick-Ass kind of feels like it's aimed at an older audience the humor feels like it's aimed at a much younger audience let me make an argument for humorlessness just for the <laughs> <laughs> I mean take, take a I think the argument that you could make would be something like Born Ultimatum right if you fill that movie with jokes or, even, or a joke I guess there's maybe a joke I don't remember, but having no humor is effective because it has a gravity to it. There's an urgency to it that you don't necessarily want to break up. You know, and also Born Ultimatum has that kind of real world connection to it. I mean, they don't make anything explicit, but it feels like the post 9-11 world of today, blah, blah, blah. So so there's something to be said there. But then the other example, and this is this is about, because we talked about Elysium, we were talking about uh, politically minded action films. Robocop to me is kind of the gold standard of how you can do a serious political allegory and make it really funny you know you know in these news segments just throw these really strong you know satirical shots in there and maybe have a couple of characters who are a little more cartoonish and just kind of get that tone right uh, uh and, and make and really sell that allegory you know so maybe maybe humor works better with allegory and going humorless works better when when the world of the film is recognizable as our own yeah born ultimatum is is something i thought of as a good example or really the whole born franchise i guess is a good example of something that's not particularly funny but is a good 
good action movie or a good series, you know, or, or I would throw Bruce Lee in there as a guy who, not exactly a laugh riot, but, you know, his action movies were great. You know, they're satisfying on their own without a lot of corny jokes in there. Uh, Jason Statham, another guy who, he's funny in... <laughs> he is, the, like, almost the epitome of humor through humorlessness. Right. I mean, the Crank movies are kind of hilarious as he stands there very serious at the center of them, but I've enjoyed sort of his more serious movies, too. Serious, uh, maybe not the best word, but uh, less humorous uh, action movies. Stuff like uh, Safe, although I guess that has a certain element of outrageousness to it that's kind of funny. Uh, There are examples. On the other hand, like, we had two different Die Hard in a White House movies this year, and (laughs) the one that I greatly preferred was the one that was funny. There was Olympus Has Fallen, which had Gerard Butler, who's, you know, I think whose comedic chops or lack thereof speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. And then you had White House Down, which had Channing Tatum and Jamie Foxx as sort of a buddy duo thing going and you know that movie had a lot of fun with the premise and seemed to kind of wink at itself and know that it was sort of outrageous whereas Olympus Has Fallen was like very dark literally dark like most of the movie was shot in like darkness and it was just very (laughs) heavy and dour and Gerard Butler was scowling the whole time and it just wasn't very fun and like to me it was like a good example of where well this premise of Die Hard in the White House is so absurd and outrageous anyway you might as well have some fun with it. I, I want to kind of get back to this Schwarzenegger heresy uh, because because Matt is a is, is, knows his work like like no one else, and I think he's the first person you think of when you think of ch- cheesy uh, one-liners thrown into an action movie. Can we hear a defense of that practice, Matt Singer? A defense of the practice of cheesy one-liners in action movies. I guess it's just the what I kind of always admire about it is just the the fact that he is essentially like you know deconstructing these ridiculous movies that he's in. There's so outrageous. I mean, probably the the funniest example or the best example of that style is is Commando, where he's playing like a retired single father who's living in the woods and feeding deer with his daughter, you know, and then there's this elaborate mission where he has to he has like 12 hours or 24 hours whatever it is to save everyone and then destroys like an entire island full of bad guys. It's just so outrageous and over the top that like the only way to really make it work is to wink at the audience and to do it with such a at first such a like sort of serious commitment to the outrageousness like when he snaps a guy's neck and then covers him with a blanket and pillow and then says to the stewardess don't wake my friend he's dead tired like <laughs> while he's worried about his daughter who's been kidnapped and is has you know has this incredible deadline to rescue her before they'll you know whatever kill her or something <laughs> i guess i just always admired the audacity of that the audacity of cheese that and there's something kind of charming about it too because in the face of all these insurmountable odds and and all that that he's still you know cracking terrible jokes i guess it 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 humanizes him in a way that is difficult because he's arnold schwarzenegger and he's a giant pile of robot muscles so i guess that helps as well i I just i don't feel like that does humanize him i feel like especially given his like his commitment to these one-liners across movies you know whether it's commando or which, which is terribly over the top but when you use arnold schwarzenegger in deconstruction in the same sentence you lose me you just you can't convince me that you know he's making a conscious 
conscious effort to take apart the absurdism of these movies and like reassemble them in some sort of intellectual form as opposed to him saying you know wouldn't it be funny here if I you know made a joke at this this corpse's expense I mean but you look at Commando or uh, The Running Man or the Terminator movies or all of these films where he makes this kind of thudding wisecrack after killing somebody that doesn't humanize him that makes him Arnold Schwarzenegger doing an Arnold Schwarzenegger bit it makes him a catchphrase it makes him an actor rather than a character who actually has a sense of humor and uh, it, it honestly does nothing for me one thing I would say um, to his to his favor and, and, and this would maybe be a general statement about action films as well is that he is indicating to you that this is an entertainment <laughs> that you are going having fun with this thing and, and I mean it really has been an increasing issue for me of big blockbuster movies is that seriousness you know it's not like it's not like I, I don't feel like some of these franchises like Batman or whatever can't, can't be taken seriously I, I appreciate that but there becomes a certain point and I think J.I. Joe was that example of just like all right why can't this be fun? Why am I taking this seriously? Why aren't we having a good time? And with, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and this is true of The Last Stand, which I thought was really underrated, man, you had a good time. That was like a throwback, and it felt great to watch that movie. And I kind of want more of that. Well, you know, where you're getting more of that right now is in the Marvel movies, particularly anything involving Iron Man. I mean, there's a case where you're integrating banter and humor and some really, really funny jokes as an integral part of a character, an integral part of what that character does, how he operates. It's part of the characterization. It's not, you know, kind of a toss off things you can giggle in every scene it's who he is and what he does and it's also pretty funny without really lowering the stakes of the movies that he's in that's what i want to see more of i think that's good thanks tasha thanks matt ice to podcast with you <laughs> okay that's see doesn't that feel good ice to, uh... <laughs> I, I, I only have the one schwarzenegger line And now it's time for our game. This is a game that Matt Singer devised called Parental Guidance Suggested, a twist on the IMDb keyword game that he and Allison Wilmore, current co-hosts of the Film Spotting SVU podcast, played when they were podcasting for IFC.com. I will throw out descriptions from the IMDb's Parents Guide, and the three of you have to guess what movie it is. All right? All right. All right, so everybody's got their barnyard buzzers, including Noel Murray, Keith Phipps, and Nathan Raven. Okay, so we've got what? What? What are these animals again? I have a moo cow, and uh, you have a. Uh, it looks like a horse. It sort of. It's a horse, like a horse, and you've got a dog. I have a mocking dog. So let's 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 get started, shall we? Uh, the gaming hat, please. Thank you, looking, uh, Genevieve. Looking less like a hat than, than ever. Okay. Man stands in front of a mirror in his underwear, admiring himself, and you can clearly see his bulge. Risky business. No, 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 Murray. <laughs> I'm going to guess risky business. No. Any any other guesses? A man stands in front of a mirror in his underwear admiring himself. Nathan? A boogie nights? Yes, boogie nights. Uh. This would not be a clue that would work, but one of the things mentioned uh, is a baby is shown fully nude. That is, that is, that is mentioned on the on the parents' guide. So of all the things to be shocked by... And, that shameless exhibition. And, and boogie nights. Baby shown fully nude. Okay, here we go. In the same sequence, cupids fly around in the nude, buttocks exposed, without genitalia. There is a gag toward the end of one movement in which a cupid's... Noel Murray. I'm going to go with Fantasia. That's right. Fantasia. Noel Murray with one. Point of order. Can we buzz in before you are done? No, no. Point of order. Let's do this like Jeopardy. Wait till I'm finished. In which case then... Fantasia. Okay. Oh, all right. Too bad. Noel, uh, Noel took advantage. We'll give Noel that one. Uh, this is a long one, so uh, hold on to your buzzers for a second. Uh, people commit suicide by hanging, by lighting themselves on fire, and by stabbing themselves. None graphic after having to listen to a boring story. This is played out for comedic effect. 
Airplane. Airplane, Keith Phipps. Oh, so we're yeah, all yeah. tied up. This is really exciting already. Gaming hat, Genevieve? <laughs> Thank you. Okay. A young woman draws a heart with the words, I want penis in it, and then kisses it. Another girl draws a line drawing of a penis and pantomimes performing oral sex on it. Nathan Raven. Uh, that would be the motion picture entitled Spring Breakers. That's right, Spring Breakers. I figured that was... Uh, I wanted to give you something there, Nathan. So Nathan is up to one and one at I this point, I got that right? movie on repeat. All right. Uh, this is going to be a tough one, maybe. At a party, toilet drinking is used as a canine substitute for alcoholic consumption. Marmaduke? <laughs> That's right, Marmaduke. <laughs> you got it. Why must everything come down to Marmaduke? I know, I know. Oh, Marmaduke. Uh, Marmaduke stays with us. All right, here we go. Two cousins marry, though considered taboo now, it wasn't during the Civil War. Gone with the wind? Gone with the wind. That's right, Keith. So Keith is up pretty uh, substantially here. Three for Keith, two for Nathan, one for Noel Noel. Come on, man. All right, this won't let stand. Here we go. Moderate sex references throughout... A brief shot of a female duck shown topless at the beginning. A few mild or moderate scenes of making out. Keith. It's Howard the Duck. Oh, my Howard God. The, God. That is Howard Damn. the Duck. Incredibly, there's no mention on the parents' guide of that creepy scene with Leah Thompson. Where they at, make passionate love. Well, she's half nude and, and, well, and they Howard the Duck is, is that mild making out? I mean, that, I think that might be what they mean by mild making oh, is out. That, that, no, it's all part of the same thing, though. Uh, mm. No, no, no. New Duck? I've, no, New Duck, I can, oh, I can tell you right. this. New Duck is it's a in silhouette or something. Play Duck. Play Duck magazine. Oh, I see. Which In the same scene, you find out that Howard, no, later you find out Howard has a condom, a duck sized condom. <laughs> oh my god. Quick buzzer time on this one. Are you ready? A woman uncrosses her legs in front of several men. <laughs> no, not not there yet. Revealing that she is wearing no underwear. Not yet. Wait for it. We see her vulva. <laughs> Noel Murray. Basic instinct. That's right. Uh, <laughs> we see her vulva. There's so many great words like vulva, vulva, bulge, and buttocks are used often <laughs> in the parents' guide, which are all wonderful terms for genitalia. Okay, here we go. A man finds a fox eating at his own guts. The fox stops and looks at the man and then talks to him. That's Noel again. Antichrist. Antichrist. Yes. Lars von Trier. Come back. And, and the fox says? <laughs> Chaos reigns. That's right. Chaos reigns. No, that's nice. <laughs> so it's an animal picture. <laughs> it is. It is. It is an animal picture. Keith, four. Noel, three. Nathan, two. Man, this is good. Torture scene by a device that sucks life away. Cries of agony heard throughout the countryside. Torture scene <laughs> by a device that sucks life away. Years, you might say. I got it. Okay. Princess Bride. That's right, the Princess Bride. So now Noel and Keith are knotted at four. Oh okay. my goodness, we still have quite a few clues left. But we get some separation here. A computer displays a wireframe simulation of ludicrously large breasts. <laughs> Weird science. That's right. Weird <laughs> science. Weird science. They don't ultimately go with that model, despite being teen boys. <laughs> they I, go with I believe one. they are told that more than a handful is a problem. And more than a mouthful, I That's believe. Right. Is, I right. think I know a handful. A handful was right. More than a handful, but you're risking a sprained tongue. Yeah. Oh, right. Wow. God damn. All right. Uh, John Hughes, everyone. So you've committed that film to memory. <laughs> That's uh, a takeaway from this game. All right. Quick buzzer on this one. A castle turret in the background resembles an erect male member. Keith. Little Mermaid. Little Mermaid, which, which I thought was much more of a, uh, it was a, po a poster scandal, but uh, apparently also a movie scandal. Or not a scandal at all, alternately. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't it? I don't remember. Well, it shouldn't be. <laughs> all right. Another quick, well, another quick draw here. Ken is shown in his underpants. 
Who would who'd that go to? Nathan. Uh, Toy Story 3. Toy Story 3. Uh, all right. Good job, Nathan. Keeping it close. <laughs> yeah. Keeping it close. Well, how many clues do we have left here? Three clues. Oh, boy. A teenage girl goes skinny dipping. It is at night, but we see the silhouette of her bare breast briefly and some flashes of her skin underwear. <laughs> da, 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 da. Not there yet. Right. In the remastered version released in 2012, you can see slight pubic hair. <laughs> Jaws? Yes. Keith Phipps, Jaws. That's why the remastered version is superior. (laughs) (laughs) The Uh, only reason they remastered it. Oh, Keith Keith is apparently going to win this thing. No one can catch him. We only have two clues left. He's up... Seven, seven oh, to four wow. to four. So, so second place is a battle here, right, here and go, Keith can be a spoiler still. And yet, I'm still upset about missing the Halloween thing last. last oh, please, podcast. please. It is B implied. A man in a dog suit is giving fellatio to another man. Uh, yes. The Shining. The Shining. It is. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, Nathan Raven. I have. I have the dog buzzer. You, you got it. it. You've got it. You can at least not not up second place here. All right. Racial slur. Chinaman is used four or five times. No Murray. The Big Lebowski. Yeah, there you go. The Big the Lebowski. Chinaman is not the issue, dude. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I believe. <laughs> what is the correct nomenclature? I'm getting the line wrong. But but that does it for our game. Uh, again, Keith, congratulations. Incredible victory for you. Uh, Noel came all this way just to play this game. I did. Only to come in second place. Pretty pretty disappointing. Very much Nathan so. in third. I disgraced my family yet again. <laughs> all right, guys. Uh, thanks a lot. And now we've reached 30 seconds to sell. We're Matt and Nathan. Hello. Hello. Uh, have Hello. 30 seconds to convince me to buy their recommendation, whether it's for a film, a soundtrack, an idea, whatever. Matt, are you ready? I'm ready. Hit me. All right, I'm actually going to recommend a graphic novel. It's called Daredevil End of Days. It's by Brian Michael Bendis and David Mack and illustrated by Bill Sienkiewicz and Klaus Janssen. And it's uh, it's this really great imaginary story, as they say in comics, about Daredevil's last adventure and its aftermath. And why it's cool is it's structured explicitly like Citizen Kane. The title character dies in the first scene right after uttering a mysterious word. And then the rest of the series follows this reporter as he interviews all of the title character's friends and tries to figure out... Oh, oh, I had so much man. more to say. You've run out of time. <laughs> You've run out of time. Now it's Nathan's turn. Okay, Nathan, go. I would like to recommend a movie called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, which I recently rewatched uh, for my job here at The Dissolve. It is a film of fascinating, powerful contradictions. It is a punk rock movie that's deeply cynical about punk rock. It is a feminist manifesto made by sexist men uh, and it is a wonderful youth rock and roll movie that uh, kind of hold youth and rock and roll in deep suspicion powered by a fantastic lead performance by Diane Lane great supporting cast people like Fee Waybill a uh, number of the Sex Pistols Laura Dern oh my goodness it's great oh my goodness wow we've got two people over the line <laughs> but I, I don't know if that really makes too much of a difference. So I, I got good information from both of you, uh, but I think I think I'm gonna have to favor Matt on this one. Yeah. Citizen I, Kane, meet nice. Daredevil. I, I'm pretty I want, excited about I that. I want to see this uh, comic book as well. Okay. Which I previously thought were just for children. Oh my god! It gosh. just came out in a nice hardcover. The whole. No, bah, 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 bah. you don't get to talk more about it, Matt. <laughs> what? What did I say? What? All right, uh, right running up the score at this point, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. That does it for episode three of the Dissolve podcast. Please join us in two weeks for more opinions, insight, and general tomfoolery. In the meantime, you can enjoy The Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Jenna Bukowski with assistance from Colin Griffith. Thanks to all our participants today. It was very ice to talk to them. And uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>